Good morning, church family. And uh, I'm just delighted to be here with you uh, as we worship the Lord and look into His Word and see what uh, God has for us. Thank you, Kyle and Macy, for leading us in, in worship. And uh, what a blessing it is to, to be able to, to worship our Lord together. And um, I just want to thank you for tuning in. And uh, we're going to be in James chapter 3 uh, today, uh, verses 13 and following into chapter 4. But, um, you know, sometimes it's just impossible uh, to say everything uh, that a passage speaks in the time frame allotted. And uh, so understand that there, uh, there's more here than meets the eye or, as it were, the ear. Uh, but understand that, that there's a lot more in here. So if you, if you want to read it and, and jump into it, I'm sure you would benefit from that. You know, the horrible evil of conflict is everywhere in our land. Conflict in our homes, conflict in our churches, conflict in our communities and in our world. You know, conflict between brothers and sisters, between nations, between races, between people groups. And the cost in lives, in property, in money, and in human suffering can't even be estimated. But it all stems from this conflict. You know, we may feel that there isn't much that we can do about our national conflict, but we can do a great deal about the conflict that is in our own hearts and between ourselves and between us and other people. See, if you truly desire to see heart change in our nation, then begin by working on your very own heart, seeking to, re re seeking to resolve the conflict that is in here. I mean, stop pouring gasoline on the fires that are already burning. Stop posting negative, demonic, divisive posts. Stop, stop starting fires with your angry comments or political jabs and jokes. I'm talking about both sides of the aisle. Stop inciting conflict and help bring about peace. See, I truly believe that most of us desire harmony in our relationships. But the reality is that many of our churches and even our homes have lots of conflict. And all too often, really. You know, quite a few years ago, a small book appeared uh, for ministers, and it was titled The Penguin Principles. And it attempted to help, you know, naive clergymen and ministers to get a handle on the people uh, of their congregations. And according to the book, the first principle of church life goes like this. Despite the pious things we say, at any given time, less than 5% of any group in the church is operating with purely Christian motivation. The other 95% is asking, what's in it for me? See, in the context of our passage, James began chapter 3 warning that not many sh people should become teachers uh, because they will incur a stricter judgment. And then he broadened the exhortation to deal with the problem that we all wrestle with, the evil of our destructive tongues, the things that we say. And in today's text, James will still be focusing, at least in part, on those who would become teachers. You know, teachers are especially prone to boast in their knowledge and wisdom. 
they easily may fall into jealousy against those um, who have bigger, uh, a bigger audience than they do. They might even give in to wrong motives and serving out of selfish ambition, trying to attract people to themselves instead of toward Jesus Christ. So our text especially applies to all of us who teach God's Word. But it also applies to every believer. In that, James is showing us God's wisdom that will lead to sweet and pleasant relationships. He contrasts God's wisdom with worldly wisdom. He calls it false wisdom, if you will, that inevitably leads to conflict. And the things that he writes here applies to all of our relationships, whether they're in the church or also in our homes or in really every area of our life. So let's look at see what Pastor James has to say in James chapter 3. And we're going to read uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 13, down through uh, chapter 4, verse 3. And this is what James writes. He says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is shown, excuse me, is sown in peace by those who make peace. Chapter 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You, do, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Loving Father, I thank you for this time and I thank you for your word and I thank you for how it challenges us and how it speaks to us and it speaks to the very situations that we are in today in our world. And Father, it is very relevant to all of the things that are going on around us and in our lives. So I pray, Father, that we would hear these words of James, that they would soak and sink deeply into our hearts. And Father, that you would help us to become uh, peacemakers in our world and in our homes and in our relationships. Father, we thank you for this time. Guide us as we seek you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, being Christians, we tend to put a spiritual face on our side of things to make it look as if we're defending the truth or maybe standing on principle. There is certainly a time and a place for defending truth. There's also a right and a wrong way to contend for truth. You know, the great defender of the faith, the Apostle Paul, he wrote this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 24 and following. He said, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, 
patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. I love that passage. He did not say, as some today would have us believe, don't get into disputes about the truth because love is more important than doctrine. That's not what he said. He did say to correct those who are in opposition to the truth, but to do it with kindness, with patience, and with gentleness. See, the churches that James wrote uh, to, they were experiencing conflict. And when James writes in, in verse 14, when he says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, the Greek conditional clause indicates that it was true, that James was not addressing a, a you know, hypothetical situation that might arise in the future, but rather a real situation that already existed. He was addressing a problem that was going on at that time. Well, having moved us from you know, the, the symptom of the problem to the source of the problem in our heart, James now asks the question about how we know whether we have true wisdom in our heart. The question that should be asked by every person is in verse 13, who among us is wise and understanding? I mean, some of you probably have high IQs. Or maybe you got great SAT scores when you went to college. You know, all that is great, and all that is to be celebrated. All that is good. But it's not what people really admire. See, what people desire to see in others are examples of integrity. People who use their smarts to make wise choices in life. That's what matters. So how smart are you? I mean, for most of us, probably not as smart as we think we are because there's so much that we don't know. But James says, you need to look into your heart, not into your brain. Look into your heart. James says that true wisdom and false wisdom are shown by their behavior. Wisdom is not just a matter of notions uh, that you know or things that you assent to, but it shows in the way that you live your life. As it says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. See, wisdom, wisdom is about acknowledging the Lord in all your ways. Alec uh, Motyer, he gives a, a good description of wisdom. He says, Wisdom is the God-given ability to see how in all our ways we may acknowledge Him. To see how in all of our ways we may acknowledge Him. And James goes a bit further. He says, Seeing how we, uh, in all of our ways we can acknowledge Him and then do it. Okay? It's not just knowing it, it's not just seeing it, but it's actually carrying through, following through, and doing it. According to J.I. Packer and God's Word, heavenly wisdom is not knowing everything that God knows. I'm going to unpack this in just a moment. 
Imagine that you're in New York City, a subway station. Kind of a scary place if you ask me, at least at this point. You might see trains coming in and going out, but you only get kind of a general view of, of, of what's going on. However, if you step inside the control room, you'll see a large display with tiny lights representing each train in the entire system. And in a glance, you may be able to survey the entire situation through the eyes of those in control. You will, you'll see why one engine is, is signaled to stop, why another one has been diverted, and why another one sits on a sidetrack. The mistake is that, that we commonly make is that we suppose that this is a picture of what God does when He gives us wisdom. That God gives us insight into the meaning and purpose of events going on around us. We then have the ability to see why uh, God has done what He has done in a particular case and what He's going to do next. See, people who think that this is what wisdom is, imagine that if they walk close enough to God, that they will be in God's command center and then they'll understand everything that happens. But God's wisdom doesn't work this way. God's wisdom is more like learning to drive a car. I mean, when you drive a car, it's important to make the right responses to the constantly changing environment. You must choose how fast you're going to go or how much distance you're going to keep between you and the car in front of you or when to apply the brakes or when to apply the accelerator. See, drivers simply try to see and do the right thing in the actual situation that presents itself. Having wisdom from God does not mean that we understand everything that's going on because of our superior knowledge. It simply means that we do the right thing as life comes along. That's godly wisdom. That we do the right thing as life comes along. See, understand this, that false wisdom shows itself in its product. Verse 15, James lists three characteristics of this wisdom. He says it's earthly, it's natural, and it's demonic. Earthly wisdom, if you will. Now, earthly wisdom has a lot to commend itself uh, sometimes. There's really some savvy pagan people out there. I mean, they know what's up. Um, there may be some pagan people that you go to to manage your money because, frankly, they're really good at it. But they're not Christians. They're not believers. They don't use godly wisdom. They're just really good at making money. There are pagans that we go to for legal advice or, or maybe medical advice. There are pagans filled with what I want to call common sense knowledge in the world. It's, what does he say? Earthly, natural, but demonic. I mean, Jesus himself even acknowledged this. Do you remember when he turned to his disciples one day and he said this? He said, the sons of this age are sometimes wiser than the sons of the next. That's exactly what he's talking about. James is saying here that just because a person has that kind of common sense or earthly wisdom doesn't mean that they have the wisdom which comes down from above. Look at what he says in verse 16. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. 
mean, what's he saying? The results of this false wisdom, the results of merely earthly wisdom, without the grace of the Holy Spirit of God, are giving evidence and proving that they are false. Things like jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, chaos, division, ungodliness. These things are the product of earthly, natural, demonic wisdom. False wisdom. Though it may seem hard to pin down sometimes, eventually shows itself by its product. True wisdom also shows itself in its product. Verse 17 and 18, James writes this, he says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteous is shown, excuse me, is sown in peace by those who make peace. You know, James tells us that true wisdom is shown by these eight characteristics and there's a one result. True wisdom isn't always easy to see. Sometimes true wisdom is a hard truth that's hard to swallow. And for that very reason, it's not easy to see. I mean, the wounds of a friend are sometimes hard to distinguish from the barbs of an enemy. They hurt, but they're wise. See, with focused precision, James tells us a basic truth here. He says, you will reap what you sow. You're going to reap what you sow. He's saying, how do you know you have the seed of wisdom in your heart? Because it springs forth in the fruit of righteousness. And when you re-sow that into the lives of others, you sow it in peace. Understand this, that peace must be cultivated and with deliberate effort and attention. Moving on here in, in James 4, he asked about the source of quarrels and conflicts among you. You know, sometimes we idealize the, the early church. But the reality is, is that the early church was made up of people and people haven't changed all that much over the centuries. I mean, many, if not all, of the first century churches wrestled with conflicts between the members. I mean, the Corinthian church had, had divided up into factions. The Philippian church had two women who couldn't get along and the conflict was so severe that Paul singled them out by name in one of his letters. The Galatian believers, they were backbiting and they were devouring one another. Paul began the practical section of Ephesians with an appeal to unity and tolerance and love between the members. And I would say even on a personal level, even Paul and Barnabas, they had a serious disagreement that led to a parting of the ways. The Paul-Barnabas split is what I like to call it where they went different directions. So it's not a unique situation when James addresses the problem of quarrels and conflicts among the believers that he wrote to. See, apply this to all of our relational conflicts, whether in the church or maybe at home or at work. For sake of time, we can only deal with these first three verses today, but the overall idea can be summed up like this. In order to resolve conflicts, repent of your sinful selfishness and humble yourself before God. I mean, to resolve conflicts, 
judge your selfish motives. Look inside and judge where you're at. I mean, that's what he says. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, if it seems like I'm stomping all over your toes, it's only because James is stomping on all of our toes. But if you listen to what James is saying and act on it, your relationships will improve dramatically. I mean, we can track his thinking with four points, and I want to give these very quickly to you. I mean, James says that self versus self is at the heart of all relational conflicts. Also, there is an enemy within each of us engaged in mortal combat. He poses as a friend promising pleasure, but his end is death. So number one, this is the the points that I want to give you. Number one, your prayer life, or lack thereof, reveals the focus of your heart. That's what he's talking about. You do not have because you do not ask. Your prayer life, or lack thereof, reveals the focus of your heart. Number two, if you do not pray, it shows that your focus is not properly toward God. If you're not spending time in prayer every day, then your focus isn't where it needs to be toward God. It just won't be. We wonder why there's quarrels. We wonder why we're in conflict. We wonder why all of the the chaos is going on in and around our life. It's because we're not properly uh, directed toward God. We're not focused that way. Third, I would say this. If you pray selfishly, it shows that you are trying to use God for your purposes rather than seeking His purposes. I mean, that's that's trying to use God like, you know, Aladdin's genie to pull Him down off the shelf when you need Him, uh, rub Him the right way, and then put Him back when you're done until the next time. It doesn't work that way. That's what James is telling us. You, You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. So, your prayer life reveals the focus of your heart. If you do not pray, it reveals that your focus is not properly toward God. If you pray selfishly, you're trying to use God for your purposes instead of seeking His purposes. And fourthly, I would say this, to receive from God, ask with the proper motive. I mean, Jesus plainly taught in uh, Matthew 7, verse 7, He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. This is what Jesus said. He's teaching this. He plainly taught that. He did not say, ask, and it will be given to you instantly. He may have good reasons to delay the answer. And oftentimes, those delays in the answer strengthen and they test our faith. See, He knows the right timing as to when 
to answer. And our responsibility is to ask, but to ask with the right motives. See, the way to resolve conflict with others is not to win the war with others, but rather it's to wage war against those powerful forces that are waging war in your soul. It begins on our knees. The battles all around us are fought on our knees. And that's what James is saying. Judge your selfish motives. Put yourself up on the cross. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives within me. And the life that I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We have to crucify the flesh. Put ourselves on the cross and you'll move in the direction of peace in your relationships. See, the first step to resolve conflicts with others is to judge your own selfish focus. See, we have to begin by receiving the Prince of Peace as our Savior and letting Him rule in our hearts. Only then can we make every effort to be reconciled to others and then to take it a step further and to use our influence for peace in the world. You know, when the, when the, the people of God, when the church begins to really repent over our arrogance and repent over the things in our lives that we have put ourselves first before others and before God, when the church begins to repent of that, then we will see peace come in our nation. But it begins with the church. It begins with the house of God. And we've got to do our part. And that's where we exert influence in the world is by being where we need to be. I challenge you to do that today. Let's pray together. Loving Father, I thank you for this time and I thank you for this word. And Father, I need this word and we need this word. The church needs to hear this. Father, I pray that you would forgive us where we've failed you, when we've not been faithful to you. And Father, where we have um, uh, prostituted, Father, our love to other things and, and, and put them before you. And I pray, Father, that you would forgive us, that you would wash us clean. And Father, that we would come to you uh, in, in humility before you, uh, asking that you uh, would guide us. Father, that you would cleanse us, that you would forgive us. And Father, help us to be using the knowledge from above, not this earthly, natural, demonic wisdom, but Father, the, the wisdom that is, is pure, that is peaceable, that is gentle, that is reasonable, that is filled with good works and good behavior and good deeds. And Father, that, that is unwavering. Oh, Father, how we need that, that, that peace that, that sows righteousness, that, that, it, that it brings forth righteousness in our lives. Father, I pray that that would be so in the lives of the believers today. Father, I pray that you would guide us in it and that your Holy Spirit would direct us to do that. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.